wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. And jump forward to verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Uh, you, you probably realize that there's a, a bit of a, a section missing from, from the two ends. There's kind of like uh, two bits of uh, the bread of the sandwich that we've read together today and the meat I'll try and summarize as we go. It's a big section. Um, but I want to give you the, I suppose, the overview and to try and distill this morning some of the, uh, the core uh, teachings from, from what we see in this, in this powerful section. Um, we've been going through this uh, teaching over the last few months now. Uh, called Advancing the Gospel, and it's all about the, 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 the power of the good news of Jesus and what happens when people take it as truth and uh, believe um, to the core of their being that these things are as they say they are and, and living life in accordance with that. And so it's, it really is an amazing thing. Um, and we've been seeing over the last few months now the beginnings of these gospel-centered spirit-empowered communities on mission being formed. We, we, we call them churches, being formed across uh, the known world as it was. And we see that they have become this very, um, even in the very early days, a very powerful force of transformation and of life, um, where, where, where lives have, have been saved from, from the brink, uh, where cities have um, been turned upside down as a result of the good news of Jesus. And um, for the last few weeks now, I suppose it's almost like a series within a series. We've been looking at the ways that this um, gospel-centered, spirit-empowered community on mission has opposition. Um, and and uh, over the last few weeks, um, if you cast your mind back, we saw, uh, for example, back in Acts chapter 5, one of the main uh, ways, I suppose, one of the, way, the, the ways that uh, the church can be um, threat, under threat is through subversion. We saw that from within. You know, people playing the game, speaking religious, but actually their hearts are far from God. So we saw that in the case of Ananias and Sapphira. And then in Acts chapter 6, we saw one of the second threats to the church was from distraction. Everybody's just so busy doing everything that they take their eye off the main goal of the church, which is to preach 
and teach about the good news of Jesus so that many may hear. And we saw that. And so uh, they tackled that at the beginning of Acts chapter 6. And so we're now turning, I suppose, to the third and final sort of key threat against the church of any age, not just here in the book of Acts, but today as well. And that is through persecution. Persecution is probably the most overt form of opposition that a church, any church or believer in Jesus, will experience. Um, and so we'll, we'll zone in on this uh, topic this morning. And as I've mentioned already, it is a massive text. Um, and I do encourage you uh, to go back and actually read the whole thing, because I'm really just going to be sort of dipping in and out, almost like a stone sort of skimming across the surface. You know, I'm just trying to bring the, the, the key teachings out this morning. But it's such a, such a gift um, so encouraging. As a church, um, we've been praying for the Holy Spirit, and we've been asking for the gifts uh, to, to, to be given to us. We've been seeking uh, the power of God. That's better. Thank you very much. We've been seeking the power of God. We, we, we've, we've been asking for a big vision for what God can do here in Clarewood, but also across the city and across our, our, uh, the island of Ireland, uh, north and south. And uh, we, we, we've been asking for these things. We're a, we're a community on mission, but even as a spirit-empowered people or a group of people that seek to be spirit-empowered more and more, we have to understand that when you receive the empowering of the Holy Spirit, uh, that comes with significant opposition. Attacks will come as a result of being given this power from God. Um, and so we must be, as a church and as believers, prepared and ready. If we're to be a healthy church, um, forewarned is forearmed. So what can we do about it? So let's, let's look uh, together at these um, teachings, um, sorry, from these verses. And we'll see uh, over the next few minutes, I'll give you a headline first of all. Number one, we will see that spirit-empowered people powerfully advance the gospel. That's a theme that, uh, you know, hopefully you can tell has been fairly key to our understanding of Acts. But spirit-empowered people, if you're a spirit-empowered person, you'll powerfully advance the gospel. Okay? It comes with the, the job description. The second thing is that spirit-empowered people um, boldly face opposition. Okay? They, don't, they don't cower um, or, or uh, stick their head in the sand. They boldly face up to it. And thirdly and finally, spirit-empowered people beautifully model Jesus Christ. Okay? So if you have the Holy Spirit in you and you're seeking to be empowered by him, driven by, as, as, a, as the wind in the sails of the boats, the Holy Spirit blowing you along, um, these three things will be seen in your life. Spirit-empowered people, number one, powerfully advance the gospel. And uh, the entire uh, verses that we're reading together in, in Acts chapter, the end of Acts chapter 6 into chapter 7 is highlighting the ministry, short-lived ministry, of this incredible leader of the early church called Stephen. He is a, an outstanding model. If you're looking for a model of what it looks like to be spirit-empowered, he is it. Um, it's so clear. Um, he, as you may remember, is one of the seven that were chosen by the early church to ensure that the distribution of gifts um, did not leave anyone out uh, by omission or commission, you know, by mistake or, 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 or whatever. You know, there's a racial sort of split or an ethnic split, I suppose, in the church. And so these seven individuals were brought in to make sure that the poor were being well served and not neglected. So he was one of them. Um, but four times in, in, from chapter 6 and 7, the, the word used to describe Stephen is full. Full. Um, full of the Spirit and wisdom. Full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Full of grace and power. Full of the Holy Spirit. He was a guy who was Spirit-empowered. Full 
of the Holy Spirit, a remarkable individual under the influence of the Spirit. He had great power, as we've been reading, great wisdom. He was very gracious. He was even given the amazing, extraordinary ability to work signs and wonders. We're not told what they were, but we know that they were extraordinary and um, marvelous and pointing to the power of God in Jesus Christ. In short, this man, Stephen, as a Spirit-empowered individual, was easy to spot. Um, If he was with us, um, you know, we'd welcome him warmly. Uh, but you would know that he was a spirit-empowered individual just because of uh, the way that he would live his life and, and the abilities that God has amazingly given uh, to him. He stands out. But don't, don't, don't want you thinking that this is some sort of special classification of believers either. Every uh, believer in Jesus, every Christian, everyone who wants to live uh, for him, a disciple of Jesus, whatever terminology you want to use, has the Holy Spirit by definition. Okay? So if you are a believer in Jesus, uh, that is because the Holy Spirit has given you the ability to believe in him. Um, if you have power and motivation to repent from your sins and turn to Jesus, that's because the Holy Spirit has given you that power to achieve those things. Um, and so, forth, so on and so forth. Uh, you have been adopted as a son or a daughter when you turn to Christ in faith. That is something that's given to you by the Holy Spirit. He's called the Spirit of Adoption. So by definition, a believer in Jesus who has eternal security, those things can never be taken away from them, has the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit, believer. You are a temple of the living God. You are part of the body of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? That's what you have when you have the Holy Spirit, because of him. But as we've been seeing, um, even in our first few months in the book of Acts and and elsewhere in the New Testament, um, Scripture makes clear that there are various moments that God chooses uh, to visit or to refresh or to empower or to fill or to anoint or whatever, again, whatever words we want to use, special endowments of his Holy Spirit to to minister to him um, and uh, to minister to the world. And uh, we've, we've been seeing this. The old guys called it unction. It's a great word, unction, receiving the unction of the Holy Spirit. And we've already seen in, in the book of Acts, haven't we, that the believers in various times were it says, filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not they didn't have the Holy Spirit on board beforehand, but this fresh, almost like a fresh wave, um, if you like, if you're stood at the beach, another wave of the Spirit's blessing comes to you. Here is somebody in, in, the, in the model of Stephen who is undeniably and marvelously filled with the Spirit of God. Incredible. Spirit-empowered people, however, powerfully advance the gospel. The thing, if you were to meet Stephen and, uh, and take him out for coffee or something like that, you would come away not thinking about Stephen, about how marvelous he is and how wonderful signs and wonders he's done. You'd be amazed at Jesus because he's powerfully advancing the gospel. He's, he's all about Jesus. He's pushing um, us towards Jesus through his ministry, uh, Stephen's ministry, he's making waves in the kingdom, he, he's pushing back the darkness um, with the light of, of the good news of, of the gospel, he's advancing the gospel, and, and, and he's been serving with power, he's been teaching about Jesus, he's been doing signs and wonders, but all of this has been pointing to Jesus. And as a result, as we'll see uh, together, all of this attracts unwanted attention. It's amazing to, to, to be encouraged by the, the progress and the advance of the gospel. But as we've already seen in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5, with the apostles, apostles being imprisoned, um, the religious authorities, in this case, are not happy about the advance of the gospel. It's a threat to them. And so they push back. 
And for us, I think, as a church here in the Clarewood Estate, uh, we're sort of in a new phase, I suppose, of our church's life and the experience. And we're seeing the advance of the gospel among us, which is amazing. We saw that very clearly last Sunday, didn't we? Uh, through baptism. That's incredible. Um, and we hope, by God's grace, to see more of those as the year rolls forward. Um, but even for you as a, as a follower of Jesus, um, it's important for you to understand that as the gospel advances in you and through you, so too will the opposition towards that gospel. It will push back. Um, there are so many good things about the gospel. I'm hoping that you're, you're picking these things up as we, as we meet and gather every Sunday at the very least. You're hearing um, that, that, that you've been forgiven of your sins because of Jesus. You've, you've, you've had the removal of your guilt um, in his eyes. By the way, it takes sometimes a bit longer for you to feel that and experience it. But in his eyes, the guilt is gone through the gospel. Um, you have been given the perfect righteousness of Jesus. As we mentioned, you've been adopted as a child of God. You've been given this new resurrection life. All these things are yours when you come to faith in Jesus. And yet you have a powerful enemy when you come to faith in Jesus as well. There's three of them, actually, um, understood variably. Sin, the world, and the devil. These three things will push back against you. Uh, together, they are not happy with the advance of the gospel in you and in the church. Sin, the world, and the devil. These are the real enemies against the church. Your own sin, the stuff going on in the world which hates the things of God, and the evil one himself, Satan. All three conspire against the Lord and his anointed, against the church of Jesus Christ. Let's see how that opposition played out in the case of Stephen here. Verse 11, it tells us that Stephen was doing some amazing things, full of grace, full of the Holy Spirit. And these uh, key sort of uh, groupings, I suppose, came together, it says in, sorry, in verse 9, the synagogue of the freedmen is a group of uh, prominent Jews, from some from Cyrene, some from the Alexandrians, those from Cilicia and Asia, together with one voice. It's amazing how people get together uh, like that. They rose up and disputed with Stephen. They couldn't withstand the wisdom and spirit with which he was speaking. And they secretly instigated men who said... We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. One of the Bible um, commentators, John Stott, writes that when arguments fail, mud is an excellent substitute. They couldn't overcome his wisdom. Of course not. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. There's no, there's no, there's no higher power to overcome that. And yet, so what they decided instead was to smear him, a smear campaign, a takedown, fake news, whatever it is, to, to trash the reputation of Stephen and ultimately of Jesus Christ. And you notice as well, there was probably an element of truth in what they were saying. You know, we've heard him speak about Moses and God. Well, he has been speaking about Moses and God, as we'll find out. We've heard him say that he's going to destroy this place and in three days, uh, you know, raise it up again. Well, he probably did say that, but not in the way that they were interpreting it or, or, or formulating it certainly not by the way this place when, he, when, when they're talking about how um, Stephen is speaking about this place they're referring to the temple in, Ju in Jerusalem the, uh, the, the, the marvelous structure a powerful visual reminder of God's presence uh, to, to the people of Israel Stephen's been speaking about that let's get him and he's been speaking about against Moses as well Moses being the great giver of the law, 
and, and the one to whom gave a load of customs and, and practices to the people of Israel. Again, you know, it's terrible. In summary, their complaint was this. The gospel is a threat to all we know and love and hold dear. We must stand up and do something about this. And so it says they instigated a crowd to speak against Stephen. I remember um, watching a documentary some time ago, and uh, it's one of these ones where the, the presenter or the the journalist or something of, of the documentary series goes and lives in the house of an interesting person. And so the documentary really follows them around with a camera, but sort of almost like living as a, a sort of, um, you know, another part of the family, observing what's going on behind the scenes. And on this case, uh, the presenter moved in with this individual um, who was a political extremist, let's say. He was a, a racist, he was an activist. And this individual um, was bragging about how he had managed himself to successfully trash the reputation of an, a newspaper reporter who wrote some things in the newspaper column one time that this individual didn't like. He didn't like it at all. So rather than just sort of writing a strongly worded letter to the editor or something like that, this individual, this political extremist and racist, um, was able, with a little bit of money and a bit of time on the internet, was able to pay some individuals to create some malicious and fictitious facts about the newspaper columnist, totally made up, so much so that every time you type that person's name into a search engine, Google, whatever, the first page that came up had these lies on every single entry. And, and, and they're all completely made up. But the, the idea being that, that if you create some lies and some nonsense and then you you put it in the right way and, and, and you get it out there in the right channels. In this case, it was social media online and other websites and other people pick up these lies and start spread. This individual's reputation was, was destroyed because of some slander and gossip that was made up, all because this individual didn't like what was written about him in the newspaper. And we can see the same thing here happening to Stephen. We can't overcome him with, with reason. We can't wrestle with him from the scriptures. Let's destroy his character. Let's destroy his, his message. This is just one example of the opposition that comes when the gospel advances. When the gospel advances, the opposition to the gospel increases. Yes, to gospel advance, but the more we do that, the more kickback we will get, the more the powers of darkness will press back. The more we advance as a church, the more likely this is that this will happen. And for you as an individual believer as well. Spirit-empowered people advance the gospel powerfully. But the second thing we see in this text, then, <clears throat> is that spirit-empowered people boldly face up to opposition. You might think that the, the sort of thing that Stephen was experiencing here, in the, really in the prime of his ministry, he was doing some amazing things. You'd expect him to get sort of, you know, taken away and hidden, or for him to go underground and just let things blow over or whatever. But no, that's not what he does. He boldly faces up to opposition. These malicious rumors, these lies, these slanders, um, the gospel of Jesus being twisted and corrupted and, and, and uh, doubt being sowed and a, a rabble being roused... Into that situation, Stephen didn't go the other way. He went in. He, he spoke up. Um, and so we, we're brought to this scene then in this, this reading um, or in the, in, in the 
uh, the council, the synagogue, I suppose, um, and, and there in this big sort of raucous area, I suppose, we have all these influential people from the synagogue of Satan, as, uh, sorry, synagogue of freedmen. Um, sorry, the synagogue of Satan is something in the Bible, by the way, but it's in Revelation. Uh, the synagogue of freedmen uh, were there, these other ones from around the, uh, the area, stirring up the people, it says there in verse um, 12, stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon Stephen and grabbed him and brought him before the council. Then it goes on to say the multiple, in verse 13, false witnesses came against him, trashing him in open court, testifying, all this stuff here. And uh, the high priest who acted, I suppose, in this case as the judge of the, the so-called case, you know, like a kangaroo court going on here, um, adre- um, you know, gave Stephen the opportunity to speak back. So there we just picture the scene for a moment, this big raucous crowd, everybody thrown up into t- turmoil, um, you've got the scribes who are the, the religious experts, I suppose the, the lawyers of, of Israel. Um, you've got the elders, these prominent people, haranguing him, harassing him, all the rest of it. And Stephen stood there alone, on his own, brave. He didn't bottle it because he was empowered with the Holy Spirit. Uh, do, do you notice, um, uh, well, actually, it's a bit later on, in chapter 7, towards the end, it says in verse 55, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He faced up to his accusers. He was alone, and yet unblinking, he stared them in the eyes. I'm sure he was very nervous, as I would be in that situation. I'm sure you would be too. Jittery, but he did not flinch. We know he's full of grace, full of power, full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit. And note this, he continued to be full of the Holy Spirit at the time of greatest trial and of opposition. The Spirit didn't sort of desert him or or the Spirit wasn't just there for the good stuff, you know, for the miracles. The Holy Spirit empowered him to boldly face up to opposition. And so when he started to speak, Stephen gives the longest recorded sermon in the book of Acts. That's why I didn't ask Neil to read it for us because we'd still be going if he had have been. Um, But it's it's a very detailed um, uh, sermon, I suppose. And again, I just encourage you to go back and have a look at it. Essentially, what, what he does is engage in what we'd now call apologetics, giving a reason for the things that he believes. That's what he was doing. And he was drawing on the shared history, the shared beliefs um, with the people of Israel, the sort of the great scheme, uh, the great history of the people of Israel. He takes on the accusations leveled at him, um, and he, he, he pushes back. So we're going to spend a few moments just to try and uh, plot our way through the sermon that Stephen has preached, um, and, uh, and hopefully then we'll, we'll see what he, he comes up with and why things are so hairy towards the end of the sermon. Um, hopefully it won't be the same for us today. Um, so Stephen, um, <clears throat> and this is not on your sheet, but you can follow it through in chapter 7 of your own Bibles back at home. Stephen embarks on this history, an overview of the history of the people of Israel from from Abraham through to Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes, the 12 sons, through to Moses, through to the kings of Israel, through to the prophets, and finally arriving at today. Um, And it's a very intense sermon, but here's the summary of what he says. Number one, Stephen says, look, you've been accusing my message of being harmful to the, the temple being harmful to the, this place. But let me show you what this place is all about. Stephen says, this place, this temple is special because God lives here, right? And they all say, yes, we, we agree with that. Well, do you remember, he says in the sermon, when Abraham, our great father, when God met him, where was Abraham? 
We, we, he was in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans, which is in modern-day Iraq. He wasn't in Jerusalem. He wasn't in the temple. God met him in Iraq. And then he goes on to say, do you remember uh, when Jacob and his 12 sons ended up down in Egypt? Where was God then? He was in Egypt. He wasn't in Jerusalem. God was there too. And then in his sermon, he says, when uh, uh, Moses was going around in the, the wilderness and the burning bush, and God met him in the burning bush, where was God then? He was in Sinai, in the Arabian Peninsula. He wasn't in Jerusalem. The point that Stephen is making with all this is, yes, the temple is special. Yes, it was God's idea to build it together. But right from the very beginning of our existence, he says, God has not been restricted to a house or a tent that we have made. God has been with his people wherever they may be. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool, says God through one of the prophets. And Jesus said, I will destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. And when he said that, he was not talking about the physical temple, he was talking about himself. The true temple, the true presence of God on earth. The tents and the temple were pointing eventually to Jesus. The temple was just a signpost. This was Stephen's point. So much for this place, but what about the customs of Moses that you also accuse me of, says Stephen. And again, Stephen went back to this unanimously agreed history of the people of Israel. Let's examine it together, he says. You love Moses and his customs so much, but look at how your fathers treated Moses, he says. In, in, in the wilderness, he says, they rejected Moses. Moses was sent by God as a ruler and redeemer. He performed signs and wonders among you, but what did he do with him? Our fathers refused to obey him. Remember that, says Stephen? Rebellion after rebellion, mutiny, idolatry, idol-making, so much for your love for Moses. The summary of all this. He says, our fathers had God and they turned away. They had Moses and they rebelled. And you people think you're better than him? Better than them? And here's the kicker. Here's the conclusion of the sermon. It's going to come up, actually, in verse 51 of chapter 7. He says this, you stiff-necked people. This is Stephen addressing the crowd. Uncircumcised, that means unconverted, in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as it was delivered by angels and did not keep it. End of sermon. And what happened next is almost inevitable. Um, he'd sort of um, maneuvered them into a corner as a bit of a gotcha moment. He really has got them. It says he was full of wisdom and power. He was very brave. He was very gutsy. Maybe he was a bit over the top, we think. Maybe he should have been quiet. But as we'll see in a few moments, they rushed at him. They stopped their ears. They threw him out of the city and they stoned him to death. Christian history is littered with people who similarly stood up for the good news of Jesus, who stood up alone and faced the opposition. Jesus himself was tried on his own. His disciples had fled to save their own skin. 
And there he was appearing before councils and politicians before they killed him. The Apostle Paul was the same. The Apostle Peter and the other 12 were the same. Polycarp of Smyrna, one of the early church leaders, was the same. Athanasius was the same. St. Patrick of Ireland was the same. Tertullian, Luther, Latimer, Cranmer. These are all names of prominent and famous individuals who would not turn back, who would not say, uh, give in to the crowds, who stood firm for Jesus and the good news of the gospel. And that is still happening today to Christians across the world. They are standing alone rather than put their head in the sand. They will not be silenced. They cannot but speak the truth about Jesus. And if you seek to be a spirit-empowered person, if you want to belong to a spirit-empowered church, you must know that we must take our stance. We must not allow the enemy to push back. Sin, the world, and the devil. Spirit-empowered people boldly face up to opposition. Thirdly and finally, let me encourage you that spirit-empowered people boldly model Christ. Um, They're under opposition. Stephen here had to respond in some way or other for the honor of Jesus, for the gospel itself. He, He could not stand and allow the name of Christ to be destroyed. The gospel too to be squished back. So how does he respond? Does he win them over with his amazing um, arguments and his Bible knowledge and his great character? No, not at all. It says in verse 54, they were enraged and they ground their teeth and they cried out. These are people losing the plot. They stopped their ears. As we've seen, they rushed together almost like a herd, an angry herd, and they drove him out of the city and they picked up stones and they fired the stones at him, one after another after another. It was an ancient sort of form of, of judgment for the, some of the worst crimes um, in Israel, um, you know, Israel's sort of society. Stoning someone to death. Slow, painful death. Because he stood up for Jesus. Not the outcome he would have wanted. Um, he didn't go in expecting that probably, but certainly not the outcome he wanted. Not the outcome the church wanted. The church lost a remarkable leader, a truly spirit-empowered person in the early church. What a wonderful gift someone like him would have been. He sought to challenge the opposition by speaking truth, and instead he was violently rejected. They couldn't refute his argument, and so the mob dealt with him instead. This unsanctioned, unlawful, unjust, brutal suppression of the truth. But here I want to encourage you, if I may. Even in death, Stephen pointed to Jesus. Even in death, Stephen pointed to Jesus. Look look how gracious God is. Uh, We've just glanced at this briefly, but in verse 55, the writing is on the wall. They're enraged, but he, it says, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. How gracious God is to give this powerful vision 
when the darkness seems to be closing in and the mob seems to be gathering even closer, breathing down his neck, and he looks up and he sees Jesus. Beautiful moment. Just before his painful death and slow death by stoning, God gave and granted this extraordinary experience. It's kind of reassurance. It's kind of welcome home. I've spoken to people who have been dying of various conditions, um, certainly through my, my church ministry. And many who are believers in Jesus have testified to this fact, that as they draw closer to death, there's a sense of peace and nearness of God that they have not experienced in their lives up until that moment. How good God is. How gracious he is to draw near in our times of suffering and opposition. And it says in verse 59, as they were stoning Stephen, this is remarkable, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then it says, falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. Christians, by the way, don't die, they fall asleep. As they come back again. Spirit-empowered people beautifully model Jesus Christ. How is this modeling Christ? Well, Jesus himself was powerful in the spirit. He did wonders and signs, much like Stephen we see here. Jesus spoke with such authority that the religious experts couldn't refute him. Jesus was arrested, like Stephen, on trumped-up charges. Jesus was subject to unjust legal proceedings. Jesus was taken out of the city and killed. Jesus said to his father, receive my spirit, moments before he died on the cross. Jesus said, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Can you see how Stephen is beautifully, even in his death, modeling Jesus? because he's empowered with the Holy Spirit. What what possesses a person, do you think, to be so enraptured by Jesus like Stephen was? Who could die a death like that? What drove Stephen to walk towards near certain death, even as he walked into the council meeting, and represent Jesus so powerfully? Well, the answer is, is, is plain. It's because for Stephen, Jesus is all. He is all. For Stephen, Jesus is above all things. For Stephen, Jesus is the, the highest Lord and Master in his life. He is more wonderful. He is more beautiful. He's more merciful. He's more fearsome than any other power that Stephen was aware of in the world. You see, when when Jesus is all, in your mindset, in your vision, when you capture a glance of the sufficiency of his salvation and his power and his greatness and his wonder, then all other considerations in your life will actually matter a lot less when you see Jesus like that. When Jesus is all to you, 
You're going to be free and willing to go boldly and face opposition and follow Jesus wherever he calls you to go. Even if it's into the middle of the council to defend the gospel in front of the sharks. You'll do that because Jesus is all. You'll obey him whatever the cost. You won't go quiet when you should speak out. You won't speak out when you should shut up. When Jesus is all, that's how you will live. There's no doubt in my mind, and I think you could agree with me, I hope anyway, that that Stephen is a remarkable character. We get this glimpse of him, and then he's, he's gone, cut off in his prime. But we might ask ourselves, can, can a normal Christian behave like this? I mean, this is extraordinary, right? It's, it's amazing. Can a normal Christian, and let's say you or I, I count myself as a normal Christian, can we powerfully advance the gospel? Uh, can a normal Christian boldly face up to opposition like he did? Can a normal Christian beautifully model Christ, even unto death? If the answer is no, then this has been a waste of our 25, the last 25 minutes. But if the answer is yes, then that has drastic implications for how we receive this teaching this morning. We've already surmised earlier on that that when we look at Stephen, this is what being spirit-empowered looks like. Is the Holy Spirit different today to the one that Stephen received? Has he changed somehow or other in, in nature? Is he a different entity? The church from the beginning until now has confessed no. It is the same Holy Spirit who animated and empowered Stephen to go to a martyr's death for the sake of Jesus is the same Holy Spirit, believer, who is in you now. It's the same Holy Spirit that has created this church and continues to dwell with us. At the final assessment, it is the Holy Spirit that draws you into a deeper knowledge of the glory of God in Jesus. And the more the Holy Spirit has his way in you, The more powerful you will become, the more bold you shall be, the more resplendent you will be emanating the glory of Jesus Christ in your life. The more powerfully we as a church will advance the gospel, the more bold you will be, the more clearly we will represent Christ to the surrounding community and beyond as the Holy Spirit comes in power among us. This, by the way, is why we pray quite frequently here at Foundation Church for more of the Holy Spirit. This is why we ask and we say, come Holy Spirit. This is why the scripture instructs us to be filled with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. There is an active element. There's an asking that we are required to do, an expectation, an openness that our hearts must have. God is shaping us here at Foundation Church to be a gospel-centered, spirit-empowered community on mission. And we're trusting him for a season of great grace. Uh, Some have said it's been seven lean years as he has taught us many wonderful and encouraging things, many necessary things. We're trusting him for seven years of great favor, great blessing, as he uh, is pleased in Jesus' name with what we're doing. We're trusting for that, but we have to know on the basis of this scripture this morning that as the gospel advances, there shall be opposition. 
there shall be pushback. But be encouraged. Be of good heart. God is bigger. Christ is stronger. The Holy Spirit is more powerful. Amen? Let's stand. Let's pray together. <laughs>